part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Chapter 10. Murdoch. Privilege, Power, and Secrets. Part 1. As I was researching the best way to tell you this story, I began to draw blanks, and the further I went into the rabbit hole, the crazier things got. It got so crazy that when I finally found my way out of the hole, I realized I was still in there, except it was daylight. This story is about the Murdoch family of South Carolina, their privilege, the legal troubles that have followed them, the history they have with the court system, Hampton County proper, multiple murders, two wrongful deaths, multiple lawsuits, at least six investigations by South Carolina's premier investigative body, a missing settlement disbursement, an attempted suicide, drugs, power, influence, coercion, fraud, and an Ozark-esque money laundering scheme that will leave you wondering who bought the movie rights. Usually, I would say when telling a story, the best way to start is to start from the beginning. But the timeline is so jacked up that attempting to follow the timeline would be fruitless, so we're going to do this my way. I'm going to give you a list of names, and then we'll take those names and explore how they're connected to the story. Okay? Randolph Murdoch III, Richard Alexander Murdoch Sr., Margaret Maggie Murdoch, Richard Alexander Murdoch Jr., a.k.a. Buster, Stephen Smith, Gloria Satterfield, Mallory Beach, Connor Cook, Anthony Cook, Corey Fleming, Chad Westendorf, and Carmen Mullen. So, now that we know most of the main characters, let's get into the main story. Remember, some supporting characters may come into play who just weren't listed here, but bear with me because we're in for quite a ride. On the evening of February 23rd, 2019, friends Morgan Doty, Connor Cook, Miley Altman, Anthony Cook, and Mallory Beach met at Paul Murdoch's home around 6.30 p.m. From there, they went to an oyster roast, arriving via boat. After leaving the oyster roast at around 12.11 a.m., the friends took the boat down the Beaufort waterfront, stopping at bars along the way. At approximately 12.49 a.m., the group arrived at Henry Chambers Waterfront Park. At this point, details are a little sketchy and I'm left to rely on the surveillance footage and the depositions of Morgan, Connor, Miley, and Anthony. In any event, while Paul and Connor were taking shots, the others were hanging out at swings in the park nearby. At around 1.17 a.m., the entire group met back at the boat and they head for Port Royal Sound. Paul takes the helm and the GPS device in the boat shows a spike in speed at 2.20 a.m. At exactly 2.21 a.m., the boat crashes into the dolphin pilings at the Archer's Creek Bridge. Quick interjection. No, they didn't crash into dolphins as in mammals. They crashed into dolphin pilings. These are structures that are built in the water to prevent boats from crashing into other more important structures like bridges or piers, as in the posts that bridges sit on. They worked just famously that morning. The boat comes to rest under the bridge, and upon impact, Paul, Anthony, and Mallory were all ejected from the boat. Paul and Anthony swam to shore. Mallory did not. 
After collecting himself, a cold, frantic, and injured Connor dials 911. 911, where's your emergency? We're in a boat crash on Arthur Street. Where, where about on Arthur Street? In Arthur Street, the only bridge on Arthur Street. Arthur Street? Archer's Creek. Archer's Creek. Please send someone. No, I'm coming. We're calling. We're calling, okay? See? Well, how far off? There's there's six of us and one is missing. Connor explains to the 911 operator that he and his friends have been in a boat crash and one of them is still missing. The operator is wholly confused, and rightfully so. Why were people on a speedboat at almost 2.30 a.m.? Are they on a boat that is actively sinking? Despite having little to go on, she dispatches first responders as soon as she's able to get a bead on their approximate location. According to Miley Altman, Paul was particularly concerned about getting in touch with his grandfather, Randolph Murdoch III. At the time, she was unsure why. Her response later to investigators, well, you know, because they're lawyers and stuff, He wanted him to be there first. Paul wasn't sure who to call, his father or his grandfather. Eventually, he settled on calling his father, Alexander Murdoch. And that is where things get really interesting. From the Hyman blog and the Press Play Podcast Network, I'm J.D. Hyman. As a black man living here in America, I am living proof that while all men were created equal, not all men are equal. We're here to dig into the American political system, explore and unearth experiences from the human condition, and be a catalyst for some hard conversations that need to be had, conversations that demand to be had. No matter what brought you here, I'm glad you came. Once again, my name is JD, and this is The Hyman Podcast. Part one, the unraveling. As the grossly intoxicated teens began to arrive at the hospital early that morning, Paul was greeted from the arriving ambulance by his father at the emergency room. Paul, Connor, and Morgan were put in different rooms. Paul, who, according to statements, showed absolutely no concern for anyone else except himself, was making sexually suggestive comments to a nurse. Morgan was in and out of Connor's room, expressing concern for Mallory out of one side of her mouth and commenting on the hotness of police officers out of the other side. At this point, Alex tried his best to get FaceTime with the staff, the EMS paramedics, and of course, the boat crash victims. According to court documents from a lawsuit filed in September 2021, as well as witness statements from the emergency room the morning of the incident, Connor attests that Alex instructed him not to mention to detectives or hospital staff that Paul was a driver. He further instructed Connor to hire Corey Fleming to be his attorney. Other reports say that Alex tried to gain access to Morgan's room several times while she was being treated by the staff and again while she was being interviewed by the police. What Alex may or may not have been aware of at the time was that bigger problems were headed his son's way. Because back at the scene of the crash, authorities were not having any luck 
locating Mallory Beach, who was still missing. For a week, state and local authorities, together with helicopters, diver teams, and boat patrols, searched the low country and the Broad River areas relentlessly. The following weekend, on March 3, 2019, a call came into 911 dispatch after a boater made a gruesome discovery five miles north of where the accident took place. 911, for your emergency. This is Kenny Campbell. We're on the search team rescue. We think we found her. Mallory's body was discovered in a marsh-like area near the Broad River boat landing. Mallory was described by friends and co-workers as someone with an infectious laugh and a lover of animals. She had a beautiful personality and a smile that brought joy to anyone she encountered. According to the autopsy, the official cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and drowning. She was 19 years old. Let's go back to the night of the accident. To understand the group a little better, Paul is dating Morgan, Connor is dating Miley, and Anthony is dating Mallory. Connor and Anthony are first cousins, and Anthony has known Paul since third grade. Remember, I said this group stopped at a park and split off. Paul and Connor going to the bar, the others a nearby swing set. Surveillance footage shows Paul and Connor enter a bar alone, where they take several shots each and leave. Paul, from what I can tell, was an alcoholic in the making. He was using his older brother's ID to buy alcohol, and from what's in the depositions, this was certainly not his first rodeo. As I said earlier, they met up at approximately 1.17 a.m. They got back in the boat to head home. And this is the last footage of Mallory Beach before she died. As if the night wasn't already crazy, this is when things really go off the rails. The group at this point were starting to become unraveled. They were tired, cold, drunk, and just wanted to go home. But Paul wasn't taking anyone serious or anything else for that matter. He began to take the boat in circles and make large, wide turns. The group sensed that his actions were A, reckless, and B, unnecessary. Anthony and Connor had both offered to drive the boat, but Paul wasn't having it. It was his boat, and no one else knew the waterways the way he did. As frustrations mounted, the teens began to argue, and the more they argued, the crazier Paul got. Paul grew particularly angry with Morgan because he felt like she wasn't taking his side enough. They wanted a different driver. Morgan wanted a different driver. Paul was crazed. According to his then friends, Paul got drunk a lot. And when he got drunk, he turned into a different person. He also had a proclivity to strip off his clothes when he was drunk. And well, he did just that. He stripped down to his boxers in 40 degree weather. I'm not one to assess anyone's parenting skills, but I think if your son was a drunk, you'd know. I'm sure they knew, but here we are. At one point, things between Paul and Morgan came to a head, and he walked around the steering console, pushed her down, slapped her across the face, cussed at her, and then spit on her. And according to her, this wasn't the first time he'd physically assaulted her. I know, this sounds like an episode of The O.C., but bear with me. 
So Mallory's had enough and she gives Paul a piece of her mind. Paul turns to Mallory, but before he can say anything, Anthony assures him it would be a gross error in judgment to talk to Mallory the way he talks to Morgan. Miley consoles Morgan, whom she's sitting next to in the front of the boat. Anthony and Mallory are in back. Paul returns to the helm and throws the throttle forward. According to the GPS, they were approaching speeds of 25 knots or 29 miles per hour. Anthony realized that the boat was moving too fast and having failed at convincing Paul to turn over the helm, he grabbed Mallory, got down in the back and closed his eyes. Anthony woke up in the water, drifting with the current. As soon as Anthony regained his bearings, he quickly began to swim. He got to a nearby piling and grabbed hole, all the while calling out for Mallory. Now, let's talk about Archer's Creek for a moment. Archer's Creek and the part of Broad River it's fed from is what's known as a tidal estuary. It's a body of water that is deeper than the body of water that it flows into. Because of this, the water in Archer's Creek ebbs and flows with the tide. This means that on any given day, the current on Archer's Creek can take you further into the inlet or out to Broad River. And the current from Broad River can carry you inland toward Kusawachi or out to the Atlantic Ocean. Archer's Creek splits Paris Island from Port Royal Island and flows both ways toward the Atlantic Ocean. On the morning of February 24th, 2019, the current carried Anthony towards Paris Island. Using the current and pilings under the bridge, Anthony made his way to shore. When he got to shore, he looked up and saw his friends on the other side of the creek on the Port Royal shore. The distance from one side to the other is 123 meters or 371 feet. He jumped back in the river, this time fighting against the current and using the pilings to aid in his endeavor. He made it to the other side. It took him 20 minutes, but he had finally gotten to the Port Royal shore. He made short work of getting to his friends only to learn that Mallory was not amongst the bunch. Miley, who had also been injured in the elision, rushed up to him and asked him what he meant that Mallory wasn't with him. At once, the group scoured the shoreline calling out for Mallory. While the group searched the water and called out for Mallory, Connor placed the call to 911. Anthony jumped back in the river, desperate to locate the love of his life, only to realize his efforts were futile. He realized it was too dangerous to go back in the water, and he knew then, in the back of his head, that Mallory was gone. Two months later, on April 18, 2019, Paul Murdoch was indicted on one count of boating under the influence causing death and two counts of boating under the influence causing great bodily injury. Because of his erratic behavior in the emergency room the night of the accident, the hospital staff was compelled to draw his blood. His blood was drawn at 4 a.m., two hours after the accident, and at that point, the amount of ethanol in his blood was staggering. 286.1 milligrams per deciliter in serum. 
To convert serum alcohol levels to blood alcohol content, you need only move the decimal three places to the left. In this case, Paul's BAC was 0.28, nearly three and a half times the legal limit. A person whose ethanol level is 286.1 milligrams per deciliter in serum should need help walking. They should present with mental confusion and impairment and should also present with nausea and vomiting. A person who is able to function at this level can clinically be diagnosed as an alcoholic. A few weeks later, on May 8, 2019, he was arraigned where he pled not guilty to all charges and was released on his own recognizance. He spent no time in jail. He was not required to attend a diversion program. The only stipulations of his release was that he surrender his passport and remain within the 14th Judicial Circuit District. Why was he not court-ordered into AA? Why was he not placed on house arrest? Why was he not given a breathalyzer at the scene of the accident? Why was Connor the only person who was given a breathalyzer? A lot of people had questions. He was awaiting trial when, one month later, on June 7, 2019, at 10.07 p.m., Alex arrived home to find the bodies of Maggie and Paul. They had been shot to death. More on this after the break. Hello, Brooks here with the Books with Brooks monthly book club podcast. We read one book a month and then we talk about it. Books like Stephen King's The Shining or Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. If you're on the hunt for book recommendations and enjoy sparkling conversation, come read along with us and then listen in. Want to hear more about your favorite TV shows and movies that are on countless streaming services? Then listen to Up Next with your new favorite hosts, me, Kristen Aviles. And me, Christina Walter. Every other week, we'll highlight one genre, but two movies or TV shows, one old and one new. We'll let you know what's hot and what's not from your favorite or least favorite streaming services. And be sure to stay tuned to the end of each episode where we shout out an artist whose name you should know for their talent in the industry. So follow us to stay up to date with your favorite hosts from Up Next, a part of the Press Play Podcast Network. Part two, the privilege of being Mr. Murdoch. Collison, I have an Alex Murdoch on the line, caller from 4147 Moselle Road. He's advising that his wife and child was shot. It's 4147 Moselle Road. I've been up to it now. It's bad. My wife and my son. So Alex comes home and discovers the bodies of his son, Paul, and his wife, Margaret, both shot to death. Initial reactions from the media, who did it? Was it revenge for what happened to Mallory? Was there some other sinister plot at work? Were Paul and Maggie on the wrong side of a home invasion gone horribly wrong? Or were Paul and Maggie even the intended targets? Were they simply in the wrong place at the wrong time? To date, the murders remain unsolved, but the mystery of the double homicide still plagues parts of the Lowcountry to this day. SLED, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, is South Carolina's premier law enforcement investigative body. They are led by Chief Mark Keel, who is appointed by the governor. While their charter is to assist law enforcement agencies throughout the state, they have exclusive jurisdiction in all matters pertaining to any criminal matter in the state. In other words, 
If SLED is on the scene, they're in charge. According to SLED, two weapons were used in the slings. Maggie was shot multiple times with a semi-automatic rifle, Paul at least twice with a shotgun. At first glance, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense at first, second, or third glances either, but here we are. The coroner placed the time of death between 9 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., just under an hour when Alex arrived. So who killed Maggie and Paul? For now, that's one for Unsolved Mysteries. At the time of this recording, leads were being followed, and attorneys for Alex believe a suspect is being looked into as being potentially involved. And if that wasn't enough, three days later, Alex Murdoch's father, Randolph Murdoch III, died of an unknown illness. If the senior Mr. Murdoch had any knowledge of who might want Paul or Maggie dead, or the rest of the family start secrets, he certainly took them to the grave with him. Alex was an attorney at the PMPED law firm, where he worked as a personal injury lawyer. Over the course of his career, he made millions representing people in civil actions. In addition to that, he worked part-time as a prosecutor for the 14th Judicial Circuit. After being thrust back into the spotlight, Alex saw that his life was unraveling much quicker than he was able to duct tape together. While the case surrounding the death of Mallory Beach initiated the series of events that would lead to the family's fall from grace, it was the homicide investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch that would spell the ending of the Murdoch legacy and would send Alex spiraling down a hole from which he would likely not be able to recover. Family secrets long hidden and a checkered past that would come back with a vengeance. That's next time on the Hyman Podcast. My name is J.D. Hyman, and this is the Hyman Podcast. I'll see you next time. The Hyman Podcast was written, edited, and produced by myself. Share with guests Whitney Hall and Mary Louise Layton co-produce and research. Cover art and branding by Kevin Aki. The theme music was composed and produced by Jim Yosef with additional music license from Epidemic Sound. The Hyman Podcast is a production of the Press Play Podcast Network. Press Play is staffed by Chase Smith, our CEO and fearless leader. I serve as Chief Operating Officer, and Brooks May is a Chief Creative Officer. To learn more about the network, sponsorships, guest appearances, or if you're interested in launching your own podcast on our network, visit us on the web at www.pressplaypodcast.com. To learn more about this podcast, our mission and vision, or for sponsorship information, please visit us on the web at www.jdhyman.com.